I, I promise, Darvel, we will not listen to another death metal record for the foreseeable <laughs> oh, future. I do not want you to limit anything. <laughs> yeah, no, that's... Hey, I'll find some stuff to throw at you guys that you will not enjoy. It's, uh, <laughs> it's good. book club a bi-weekly podcast in which we decide upon a theme recommend records that fit that theme and then meet back up to share our thoughts i'm joey albin i'm darvel hurlbutt and i'm james doyle so this this album we're looking at this week is uh, pain remains by lorna shore so Pain Remains is the fourth full-length LP by the band Lorna Shore that was released on October 14th, 2022. Um, it is the first full-length that they've done with their new vocalist, Will Ramos, produced by Josh Schroeder. He's done a ton of really good metal albums over the years. Adam D'Amico and Andrew O'Connor are on guitar, Austin Archie on drums, Michael Yeager on bass, and as I said, Will Ramos on vocals. This is a interesting album for a lot of reasons i think the first one is that lorna shore is a band that has none of the original members um which i found in researching this album adam is the oldest member but he's actually the second guitarist they had in the band he's not the original guitarist they've kind of just gone through different iterations until they hit this one that seems to be working pretty well my history with the band is i didn't hear them I I never heard them at all until Immortal came out, which I think was like 2020, and that single got some like some traction on some of the like metal playlists and subreddits and stuff like that. And I listened to it, and it sounded like deathcore, and I didn't like deathcore, so I just tuned out and never paid attention to it again. I am a when it comes to metal, I consider myself to be a poser. I li- <laughs> I like what I like, but I'm not. I, I like to hang out in the like melodic death area quite a bit, and I don't really stray outside of that very much, except for the classics. So, never been into deathcore. Hated Job for a Cowboy when it came out. Never got into Chelsea Grin. Uh, so, I was really surprised when the EP came out with Will Ramos on it, and uh, enjoyed that quite a bit. Then the preview tracks for this album came out, and I thought I was going to hate it based on the preview tracks and the full album as a whole really enjoyed so kind of curious to see what you guys thought yeah just to kind of some of the stuff for me like i so i will say i kind of liked job for a cowboy i did like them more once they stopped being like that first ep that had the really big famous song on it it was like okay the album that came after that that was more straight ahead death metal i liked a lot better then I actually really liked the band Whitechapel and mm. which that was like kind of as almost like leading to the genre of deathcore being created. Like they, you know, they kind of needed to create it around them a little bit. I, I very much dislike the band Immure and some other like high profile deathcore bands. 
I think there's like a lot of pretty bad, like masculinity, like gender stuff in some of it. A lot of it's really boring. Yeah. So I'm, I'm very pleasantly surprised that I also am, am liking a lot of the Lorna Shore that I, that I've listened to. Yeah. For me, this is a all new territory. And so uh, I did a few months back, James and I had been texting and he had mentioned Lorna Shore and uh, I'd also watched a YouTube video that had just mentioned them. So I went and listened to their, is it to the hellfire? Mm-hmm. Yeah. That single. I mean, it's, you know, newcomer to death metal. I think it's a <laughs> pretty common just a, oh, okay. That's interesting. I mean, yeah, but I think that was the first time I ever listened to a death metal song all the way through. And so now I've got 10 more to add to that from uh, <laughs> listening to this album. Yeah. Excited to talk about it. One of the things I think is really interesting is, you know, metal has so many subgenres and different, like, I, I remember when the EP came out and Joey and I were texting and he was like, oh man, it's like blackened in there. And I was like, I've never even heard that term. And so I, I looked up and it's like, oh, it's so blackened deathcore is deathcore with black metal influences. We should even back up from there. Like deathcore is death metal with metalcore influences. Right. Metalcore is metal with hardcore influences. So like we're like many, many levels of <laughs> genre squashed together. When we, when we say black and deathcore, that's like five genres crammed together. <laughs> I think this album's its biggest strength is that they don't box themselves in to that genre though. Yeah. They, they pull from, not only all over the met- the metal spectrum, like there's symphonic elements, metalcore elements, there's a little bit of thrash, there's, um, but they also have you know these really interesting pop song structures and hooks that would be common in like the the 1980s. They'd be on like MTV Radio Play if you took out the screaming and the you know machine gun double bass behind it. I think that's one of the things that really played well on this album for me. I agree. Like, I think I, I would say there's at least like four or five genres very strongly represented here, but it's not like, and now we're going to do this genre and now this genre, it's very integ- well integrated. Yeah. And I, I think we're going to talk more about the like structural stuff. Cause I, I kind of went back and forth on that. Like there were some where it's like, Oh, making a death song with like defined verse chorus structure really works quite well there's at least one song on here where it's like, Oh, they just repeated every chunk of this song three times and turned a three minute song into a seven minute song. Cause they literally just repeated stuff. Like it's just concatenating chunks together, you know? So I think it kind of, it go, kind of goes all over the place, but it is an in, overall an interesting way to do extreme metal. And then the, the other thing I, I told you guys about the Apple music, the talk through with Will Ramos, where he talks through the concept of the album the lyrics and the thematic elements of the album really line up with their vision. Yeah. I really enjoyed reading through that and uh, it did help me enjoy the album more. Well, cool. Do we want to do tracks? Yeah. I, uh, (laughs) I won't, don't think I'll have as much to say for each individual tracks. I do have some comments and stuff, but uh, this one was really hard for me to take apart each track. (laughs) Like all of my comments, apply to each track. <laughs> and so, yeah, let's well, do it. I'm, I'm really interested to hear that because like you can only interpret things the way you interpret things. Like 
I can only listen to this band as me. I, I can't truly know what it's like for someone else to listen to it. And so like for me listening to this, like I'm building on like every metal band I've listened to since junior high or whatever. And so like, there's probably a lot of stuff that I really wouldn't think about the way you would think about it as like uh, with fresher ears, you know, like I'm putting it immediately putting it into a context that I would imagine most of the people listening to this album are putting it in. Whereas I think you're kind of in a, a privileged position to kind of be able to not have to put it in that context. Darvel's like, it was not a privilege listening to this album. <laughs> Let me tell you. <laughs> I was trying to come up with a good term for that type of privilege. But <laughs> you said most of your comments are kind of like for the album as a whole. Do you want to go all over those before we go to the tracks or? Um, on some of them, I'll save it just so <laughs> I'm worried if I say everything at all, then I won't have anything to say the rest of the podcast. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, some of the main things for me, it actually worked out because I ended up having like a 45 minute drive the day after you had said this album. And so I was able to listen to most of it just in one sitting, which I think was good for my first time listening through. And uh, I, <laughs> I ended up at a store right after that and found myself like walking through the aisles like, <laughs> with no words no like specific song or anything but it was just and as i've gone through the weeks britney keeps looking at me funny because every time i stop <laughs> listening to it i just like start and i'm like it's it's weird because it's not like catchy in the way that a pop song is you know where i'll come away from it like singing the hook it's just i don't know it was just natural for me to start growling stuff um <laughs> It's interesting you mentioned too how uh, there's a lot there that you felt like was kind of like 80s pop if you just take away the growling and the machine gun kick. I'd made a note of that, that I was like, I would definitely like this music more if you took away the growling and the <laughs> machine gun kick. I don't even need it completely gone. It just, that is the music. It's just like there almost all the time. Like the times that it does break away from it, it's like, that's like a fresher breath there. But like the majority of it is that. And that was, uh, I don't know if it's an acquired taste or just not for me, but I was definitely like, okay, <laughs> that's what this is. And uh, I don't know, that's kind of where that ended. So let's uh, dive in to the opening track. So Welcome Back, O Sleeping Dreamer starts with this huge symphonic opening, lots of choirs, lots of strings, very like epic stuff. And then immediately gets into the... <laughs> from there my favorite part though in this entire song is the syncopated rhythms with the 30 second note subdivision i've never heard anything like it and it is so well done so that's like they play the rhythm it's like bum ba 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 bum 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 ba bum bum but they subdivide that and everything just lines i loved it so much yeah it's it's very cool that they are able to do that i also i think this is a really good example of like thinking about like the technology of music so i want to be very clear that like i'm not saying like oh kids these days with their computers just make fake music i i think this is it still takes immense talent a different kind of talent i don't think you can actually do that stuff without the assistance of technology so mm -hmm. like having very sensitive triggered kick drums having like 
ultra snapping it all to the grid in the studio, live playing to tracks and clicks. Like once again, I don't mean like they're cheating, but like it is interesting. Like this whole album, such a good example of like, this takes every bit of the technology that's available right now. Like, I don't know if you could have made this album 20 years ago and that like his vocals sound the way they do. Cause it's like eight layers of vocals most of the time, you know, and like the super synchronized clocked everything, you know, I, it's very cool. It sounds awesome. But I, I do think I was thinking a lot like the technology and like editing that went in to like make it sound so clean. Do you have a comment on that, Darvel, or as someone who's done that from like a production standpoint? I mean, I agree with what Joey is saying. Um, I'm curious because I know a lot of bands like, you know, they have a lot in the album that when they play live, they'll then have like backing tracks or stuff to kind of fill in that for their live performances. Do you know, have any idea if that's something that Lorna Shore does, if they have backing tracks as their, I mean, I guess for the orchestra stuff, they probably need that, but yeah, um, like with the screaming and things like that, do you? think there's backing tracks there to help get that full effect across in the live shows? So uh, Joey and I actually saw them live this past summer before this album came out. And so they were still touring on the the EP with Will and then some of the older stuff that the old singer did. They did Sun Eater at that show, though. They did, yes. Yeah. You're right. I remember the choirs being there pretty well. Um, I remember it seeming pretty obvious they were playing the clicks. I don't know the double tracked vocals are there though i i don't know either i couldn't they could have been like i i don't i don't want to say like oh they definitely weren't but i don't yeah i don't know i know they were definitely piping in the the orchestral stuff the choral stuff the drum was definitely a sampled trigger the kick drum maybe the whole drum i don't know but i know at least the kick drum was a, a triggered sample for sure. The guitars were all, they were doing what a lot of bands do now, which is like everything is running through computers. The guitars were doing uh, digital modeling that all of the, the patch changes are triggered by the computer, like via MIDI. That's also what's triggering the drum sample and the orchestral sample. So who knows what all was going through it. I, I will say Will is a, like generational talent when it comes to the vocals though. And if you watch some of this stuff that he puts out, he has a YouTube channel where he does you know, what he calls one take tracks or whatever, where he goes through and shows what he does live. And it's remarkable how close he can sound to the recordings. Oh, wow. And some of the stuff he does, there are two sounds coming out. Like he does like multiphonic, screaming sometimes where there is a low pitch and a high pitch at the same time. Like, so, huh. which is also pretty wild. Check that out. <laughs> yeah. That's crazy. I remember you guys mentioning the YouTube video where they like had the throat camera. Yeah. Is that right? Yeah. And how they like, you know, these researchers like were seeing new things, like things they didn't know you could do. Is that right? Yeah. They were like giddy watching his throat cam. <laughs> <laughs> So going back to, to this song in particular, though, um, a couple other moments that I thought were really interesting. Uh, the key change right before the first breakdown was really surprising to me. It happens for like maybe 20 seconds. Mm -hmm. And then they go into that first breakdown and then into a solo and then kind of back home. There's not a lot of that going on in most modern music. 
And so the fact that they included it for just at all is nice. And then having it for such a brief period of time, I thought was a really interesting artistic choice. Yeah. And there's a a few songs where I mention it, where there's like a very clear key change, like in a very pop sense, like, Ooh, fun key change. And it's kind of one of these things where it's like, Oh, the fact that I noticed there was a key change means there has been like a defined tonal center this whole time, which is pretty rare for extreme metal. Like most of the time it's kind of organized cacophony in terms of like pitch and harmony and stuff. Like another good example of that is like this solo and all the solos, but since this is the first one, he really like plays the changes very well. Like the the chords that are happening under the solo the solo fits that it's not just like a linear thing. Like it's, it's outlining those chords under it, which is like pretty cool for, for extreme (laughs) metal, you know, like a a band like Slayer, for example, Carrie King is just playing like noodling. There is no tonal center of his solos. And these are very tonal solos. I wanted to say two things about the vocals on this track. One there is something I noticed on this song. I think it's probably strongest on this song, but it happens on other songs. He does like very kind of syncopated vocals that almost like if you were to take it completely out of context is like a very hip hop. It's all, it almost has a flow the way a rapper has a flow. And I wondered if that's because like we are in like a post new metal time. So like all of the people in this band were kids listening to new metal or maybe their dads were listening to new metal. I don't know how old these people are. (laughs) And so like, you know, thinking of like the way rap metal has kind of infiltrated like a bunch of other genres, like just even just like in little things like this with like a, a little rhythmic thing. The other thing is fun college term text painting, which in music is when the music in a, in a song does something that matches the lyrics of the song. So in this, there's a really good one in this one where he's screaming world slow down right as the song slows down into the breakdown, which I thought was kind of a a clever musical pun a little bit. (laughs) That's a neat detail. I didn't, I didn't pick up on that one. Yeah, me neither. Last thing on this song for me, going to what, Darvel said earlier about when it does let up, you get that kind of breath of fresh air. Uh, I thought it was really cool how they layered the narration section. When the narration starts in the song, everything steps back. And that's the first time we get that really open, just boom, backbeat. That was pretty neat. Yeah, I agree. I'll, I'll also say this goes for the whole album. For the most part, I was pretty impressed by the orchestral stuff on this album. It actually sounds... So a lot of orchestral stuff in metal is very cheesy sounding, either cheesy in like literally how it sounds because they use like bad digital instruments or cheesy like musically where it's like that's a real orchestra would never do that. A real composer would never. This stuff sounds pretty good. I know the guitarist, uh, Andrew O'Connor. Yeah, he did all the orchestra stuff. I'm curious if they worked with like someone who knows a little bit about arranging because like a lot of this stuff I thought was pretty good for orchestra in metal. Yeah, I agree. There is a ton of really good um, scoring in here. And, and there's some details on specific things in some other songs that I, I didn't pick up until 
15th 16th listen to the album and there were still layers that were coming out that was like oh my gosh i was really good i need to make a note of that yeah and that was the comment i was going to add for this song too is just and again for the whole album that yeah i i did enjoy the orchestra elements especially not being a fan of this style of music it was nice to have those little breaks but yeah i thought it was really good so we 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 mentioned the concept but didn't discuss it entirely so the the concept is basically a person falling asleep realizing that they're in a dream they take advantage of lucid dreaming become kind of like the god of their existence like make their own race and all that stuff and then find a a something they can't replicate in the world that makes them miss the world they came from and so they destroy everything and burn it all down so into the earth in that context is where the struggle is happening of taking over the dream I thought one of the really clever things in this was um, the introduction of the melody. So this dichotomy between Will's, um, for lack of a better term, the the goblin voice that he does and the clean piano that outlines the melody for the first time. And then after that, that melody comes back in a bunch of different forms. The guitars do it. The strings do it. But that first introduction of it, that bum, 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 ba, I thought that was a really cool, just a, a really great sequence. Yeah. So about the lyrics, I, I like intentionally didn't go read about the plot. I was like, I'm going to try to decipher these and find the story of this on its own. What you just said makes a lot more sense because I had a hard time. I felt like there were two separate narratives. I think I thought there was a narrative about like uh, the kind of Promethean Luciferian, like I'm a dreamer who crashed down from the sky, you know, bringer of death type thing. And then really the last three tracks or technically last one track, however you want to say it, it's kind of like its own little story where you get into the, like, you know, I've lost someone. I see her ghost or I see their ghosts. I want them. Like, I felt like that was like almost shoehorned in a little bit lyrically because like we have this pretty clear, like with like literal references to like Greek mythology with like, you know, Icarus, and then also like some, I think, pretty specific ref- references to like uh, Christian or, or Jewish stuff as well about, you know, there's some cool word in here, even like, a oh, at, towards the end, there's like a cool Greek word for like ghost. But anyways, so I thought and like some if they couldn't decide like, OK, is this person rising and ascending a la Icarus or is this person crashing a la, you know, Lucifer falling or is it Promethean? as in like I'm coming down to bring fire or whatever. Like I thought it was a little messy kind of squishing all that together. I think it works well enough though. Yeah. And and part of that in, in that interview I sent you guys, which I think it's cool that you, you didn't read it because then we get the perspective of, of someone going in through the lyrics, which like you said, we can only experience what we know. And so knowing the story ahead of time, I think might've colored my opinion, but he said that they had to flip apotheosis and wrath okay wrath was supposed to be you know like the the track where it's like everything's really coming apart and then apotheosis was that first little glimpse of light and then pain remains happens that that makes a lot of sense okay so why did they have to switch it they said from the flow of the album Hmm. it just apotheosis fits so much better before the other song okay and i i thought that was interesting reading that um just because I love concept albums and, you know, doing, I mean, I've never written a full album, but 
I got close with that one, but uh, just the idea of having it, the story laid out, and then being like, oh, well, it makes more sense, like, listening-wise to switch these two, even though it doesn't make sense with the story, like, hurts me. <laughs> like, if I had to make that decision <laughs> with my own thing, I'd be like, well, no, no, I mean, I know, I understand what you're saying, but I'd, I'd be like, can we change it so that it does work this way? Yeah. Um, so, yeah, I thought that was a interesting choice. So... One thing I wrote about this song, I like this. This is a great song. Very quickly, I mean, really within like the first minute, they've very cleanly done a very cool genre switch. So like the song starts out and like very like straight ahead textbook symphonic death metal. And then when the vocals come in, the guitar also switches and the vocals are like very black metal vocals. The guitars are like very grindy black metal guitar. And by the time that little vocal part's done, we're in like very cool symphonic black metal. And like, it doesn't seem like we're trying on outfits or anything. Like it's a very smooth transition that works like super well. I mean, probably because these genres are all related, you know? So like if you can kind of tap into their commonalities, but like, it's like very smooth kind of seamless. Like, yeah, I thought it was really good. I think again, that is a testament to the level of the musicians playing on the record because at, when they come back to that kind of like symphonic black metal thing that you're talking about, it I, I think that's the area where the metric modulations start happening. Yeah. And it's so that switch to the compound meter is so, Oh, this is cool. Like we're in a new area. And then they seamlessly go back into the duple feel. You feel the change without it feeling jilted or forced in any way. Yeah. So here's a question for both of you. This there's one thing on this track that snuck through that I am glad is not anywhere else. So one of the worst elements of deathcore as a genre is on the breakdown, you get the ultra high tuned pingy snare drum, like Saint Anger Metallica snare drum, like ultra high tuned snare drum. You hear it on the first breakdown of this song. And I don't know if it's because they are literally doing a different drum sound or if it's because they let the reverb spill over into the blank spaces more than they do on other stuff. And the drum always sounds that way and we just don't notice it in the context. I don't, I'm very glad that there's not the high pingy snare throughout this whole album because I think it would be very annoying. <laughs> I noticed how high pitched the snare was. But I liked it. It wasn't like 311 where they tightened the snare drum head so tight that it was like a basketball kind of sound. Yeah, like a, like a four square ball, that, that kind of sound. Yeah. I did not think about the snare once. Oh, sorry. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, good key change at the end of this song also. Another thing I can point out in this song, it applies the whole album. You know, the thing that makes deathcore as a genre is breakdowns. It's death metal with breakdowns. A lot of deathcore bands, especially I'm going to say it again because I don't like them, Immure, Oceano, their breakdowns are corny and boring and simplistic. This band does very interesting, technical, cool breakdowns that I think keeps it from being boring. Again, so much of this just meshed together for me. Um, but I definitely, the breakdowns, I did like the those shifts in the songs. And so from a much 
lower technical level, <laughs> I definitely agree with you there that um, I really enjoyed those elements of the album. So for me, and again, this is coming from more of a, a person who listens to a lot more melodic death, is the the breakdowns are the, are the most tiresome element of the album for me. You could really just leave them, and I'd be fine. Um, yeah. <laughs> I do give them credit for putting as much variance in it, but the fact that they felt beholden to it throughout the record, I think is probably one of my least favorite elements of the record. Yeah, I mean, when we get to... One of these songs really soulless existence. We'll get to it when we get to it, but I don't think it has any. Well, no. And that's, that's my favorite song on the album. (laughs) Cool. So let's, let's jump ahead. Well, I did have one thing to say with this one, because James, you had mentioned uh, the singer is good at annotating his growling and screams. And I definitely was surprised at how many of the lyrics came through. But yeah, this one, especially the my body has grown so cold mm-hmm. that is out of the whole album the only line that when i wasn't listening to it like would come like you know i'd be washing my hands and <laughs> my body has grown so cold like i could hear it and sing it and it was like i w- i wasn't expecting that listening to to this music so i did enjoy that also one more thing about this song we get our first taste of something that'll come back later which is like what i think is a very edm sounding section it's it's what leads up into the final breakdown of this song that it happens uh a few other times on this album mostly in later songs so are are you talking about the part where like everything cuts out and he just like the hallucinations of familiar sensations develop me that I th- part I, I think so i didn't write a note about the lyrics to know what i'm talking about but yeah it's like towards the very end and everything drops out um, if this was like a crab core song, it would be where there was an actual literal techno break. Thankfully they don't do that. I feel like we're spending way too much time on this track, but there's another element <laughs> when, when you mentioned that, that I'd forgotten about the, the vocal cadence in that last verse is so weird. Yeah. But it works really well. It, it took me a few times cause you're expecting the, it keeps this kind of beat in the beginning and then it kind of, he gets a little faster. Yeah, he starts overlapping kind of or like catching up to himself. And then, yeah, hits that huge downbeat. Yeah. Oh, man. So, Sun Eater? Sun Eater. Sun Eater. What is life but a fevered dream? Such a great opening. Th- this was the first preview track that came uh, out before the album, and I was fully on board with this. Then I think it was Into the Earth, and then curse to die which taken outside the context of the album i was kind of like huh but yeah this uh this track here really cool stuff has one of my favorite lines on the album the these fragile wings will touch the sky and paint the world in black and white very evocative language sounds like afi (laughs) it sounds like afi when davy could still write lyrics yes it does (laughs) Okay, so now what would the Davey Havoc version of that, the 2022 version would be like, black and white, black and white, black and white, these wings are black and white, touch the sky. (laughs) You have to, you have to get some reference to LA and fashion in there too, like. (laughs) And cigarettes. These, these these sequined wings on Sunset Boulevard, (laughs) black and white, black and white, black and white. (laughs) 
one thing about this song. So I was the first couple times I listened to this album, I just listened to it. And then like I did the, okay, sit down, got the lyrics open. I'm going to be taking notes. He, there's way too many lyrics at the very beginning of this song. Like when you read the lyrics and listen to him, he is definitely skipping a solid third of the syllables that should be in these words. <laughs> like there's not enough room to, to seeing all of them, which I thought was kind of odd, like just write fewer words. <laughs> then you don't have to sing them all. That's interesting. Go ahead, Darkle. No, I was going to say that because this is one of the songs I didn't do it with all of them, but this is one that I, as the song was playing, was following along with the lyrics. And, uh, I was like, oh, yeah, that, I can understand what he's saying here. Okay. But I didn't once think, oh, that, you know, squished in there. He skipped some syllables there. <laughs> but He does this a lot where he does this like, and I think this kind of goes back to what you were saying before, this kind of like new metal flow. Spitting. Where, <laughs> yeah, where he's, he's, he's trying to get a lot in. Um, there was a track on their EP that did this too. And I remember at the time being like, whoa, that's cool that he's singing fast. Yeah, I think for me, it wasn't even so much like the amount of lyrics. It's that like, I don't think he's literally saying all of the words. Like, oh. I think, <laughs> I think like he's not able to fit all of the syllables in the allotted uh, space. <laughs> this is a cool song. I'm kind of surprised they led with it. I mean, I think it's probably, I guess, on the top half of this album. I think it's an odd song to lead with. My my take on that was it's the thing that sounds the closest like the EP they released last year. Okay. You know, everyone knows To the Hellfire. This one really sounds like uh, uh, the one that's like, we are infinite, we are infinite towards the end of it. I forget the, the name of it. Yeah. Maybe we could talk about this now. If you are making a new album that sounds very different than everything you've ever done, you have a lineup of people that is very it's not the same lineup that you've ever done. You're in a genre where it's already pretty polarized. Like a lot of people really hate deathcore. A lot of metal fans hate deathcore. And you're also not one of the most famous deathcore bands. Why not make a new band? I get if you are Whitechapel, we have this huge fan base. We don't want the, the brand of Whitechapel is a very strong brand. We got to keep it going. If you're Lorna Shore and you're kind of a, you know, you're in the middle of the pack, why not make a clean break? It's a great question. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, the, the only thing I could think is that they didn't have enough time to get enough material together before they toured again. That's the only thing because they, they played two or three songs off of Immortal on the tour that we saw them and it was still a pretty short set. I think yeah. eight songs total. Yeah. So I don't know the dynamics of the death core scene. I don't know how many albums they had sold previous to that point. If Lorna Shore was punching above their weight, but I, I don't, I, I had never heard of them besides that one single. Like I said, Me so neither. that's a good question. Well, maybe they'll listen to this podcast and can write in and tell us. <laughs> So the next track is really interesting to me, but I've talked first a lot, so whoever wants to take it. <laughs> I don't have anything to say about this track. So I'll say this is where we finally get into, like, we're in pure Swedish 
mellow death now. Like this is an in flame song. This is an at the gate song. This is an entombed song, like 100% right down the middle, like Swedish melodic death metal. It's awesome. Like I love that stuff's cool. Like I think we're less, we're doing this song and really the song after it also much less genre fusion. And like, we are doing this other genre for an entire song a little bit. It's interesting. Both this track and the next track reminded me of other bands. And then I went and listened to those other bands and I was like, well, they don't sound exactly like that. Yeah. But, but I get that vibe. The, the, <laughs> the band that this reminded me of was uh, Amana Marth. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mentioned them in one of the other songs I mentioned, Amana Marth. I wonder which, is it this one? Yeah, I mentioned it somewhere. But yeah, you're right. Uh, oh, Wrath. They also do some Amana Marth stuff. I was like, this sounds like an Amon Marth song. And so I went back and listened to Amon Marth. And I'm like, Amon Marth is not this heavy. <laughs> like, they, 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 sound, they sound like a Disney song compared to this. Like, this is so over the top and intense. But, but I, I did get a lot of those, like, uh, uh, riffs of that. Yeah, like the pedal point. Yeah. Well, or, like, another good one would be, like, Black Dahlia Murder, you know, that's doing the, like, a modernized, maybe slightly heavier version of At the Gates. You know, I I think there's some of that in here. Like I said, I, I live in that realm. That's mm-hmm. my preferred flavor of metal. So I, I really, these two songs I really enjoyed quite a bit. This one also had the very pop song structure. Verse, pre-chorus, chorus, post-chorus. Verse, pre-chorus. And then they had the breakdown. I have to have the breakdown because they're deathcore for some reason. And then, you know, <laughs> chorus, outro. The lyrics in this one are are pretty cool. I, I like that, you know, before I had talked about like, we have like an Icarus thing and a Lucifer thing, kind of not quite sure what, what we're doing. This one, there's some good synthesis there because it's kind of like, he's almost implying, the narrator, I say he, the narrator is almost implying that like the act of challenging God inspired and created like all of the sins of the world that now kind of are like sustaining him as the new God. I thought it was kind of like a clever, clever squaring of the circle a little bit. Yeah. And then also the, you know, you mentioned the mythology mentions Kronos by name in this one. Right. Right. Which I thought was pretty clever. Yeah. So soulless existence. This is my favorite song on the album. This sounds like insomnium to me. Yeah, this one is the one we were saying earlier is like pretty straightforward, like modern symphonic black metal, like a Demi Bourgier or or even going like really old um, uh, Bathory, you know, like going all the way back to like when Viking Viking metal became a subgenre of black metal. Like I think they're kind of begging us to draw these comparisons because like the lyrics are just full of like nightfall, tundra, frost, snow. Like it's all very black metal coded. <laughs> the the thing that I find fascinating about it though is that yes, you're taking this these tropes of this very very stark genre that has a very troubled past to say the least. Yeah. They put like like this is like the first one I felt like was like a really like a pop song and it came down to that that sing-along lyrics of the and you will find between the black and white and that same riff and you will find between the black and white just keeps repeating over and over which again is a callback to sun eater right right but very good pop stylings i thought 
Yeah. And, and this is the one where like, I even diagrammed it out, like, you know, A, B, C, whatever. I don't have it in front of me, but it is like A, B, C, A, B, C, B, C, B, C, like literally like just repeating, like you could have flown parts of this song in the DAW from, you know, just moving it around, like building it in the DAW and it would turn out pretty much the same. Like it's like, I think this one suffers a little bit because it is like a seven minute song that I really think has like three and a half minutes of content. Like there's like the song for about three minutes and then a guitar solo. And then we literally do the whole thing again in slightly different order. And I, I think it sounds cool. And like when you're listening to it in the background, the song's just going. But once I was like sitting down, just all I'm doing, you know, active listening, I did notice that like, we're just doing this whole song over again, like, like kind of on repeat. I also love this song. I mean, like I, I really, really love high production black metal. And so this, this fits the bill. Perfect. So I'm curious um, where so many of the lyrics, I mean, you guys, for the most part, have to go look up the lyrics, right? Like you're yeah. not able to pull them all from his singing. Or James, are you like, oh, no, third time listening through, I know them all. <laughs> I, I think it's just the amount I've listened to it. Like I said before, this is my, whereas the Coheed record was probably my favorite record of 2022, this is my most played record by far. And and even these past couple of weeks, like I've listened to this album probably once all the way through every day, like, you know, and so, so a lot of it, I picked up when he gets to the, like, like the guttural stuff, it's incomprehensible completely. Right. <laughs> but, but, yeah. but like most of this song I thought was pretty clear. I think, I do think he does do a, a much better job than many metal vocalists of doing extreme vocals with enunciation. And I do think there is a little bit of ear training you have to do that. Like if you listen to a lot of this, these genres, you do start to hear certain words leap out a little bit. That said, maybe if I listened to it as much as James did, I, I could have gotten more of the lyrics. I did have the lyrics open in front of me and you know, that was necessary for me. There were moments like, like the crepuscular, why I, <laughs> I texted you guys where I was like, I have no idea what that guy is saying there. And like, I looked it up and I was like, Oh, I didn't know that word. That's why. Like, you know, like <laughs> one other thing on this song, this, this was the first song that I thought really did well with the, um, it wasn't just an angry song. Yeah. And, and, and this one, um, again, knowing a little bit of the context behind the album, cause I did like a deep dive into it. Yeah, Adam D'Amico was going through some stuff when he wrote this and it was, they almost didn't finish the record because like he was like, I'm, I'm done. Like, I can't, I can't do this. Like, it's too much. The pressure is too much. I don't want to write music anymore. I'm, I'm out. And I, I think this song, the lyrics capture depression so well, just a lot of these, the, the imagery that they paint, you know, we, we obviously have the dissociation in there and all that stuff. But the like it it just it comes in waves. I don't know when it's coming, but it's it's always there like clockwork, you know. And then, um, I I feel stuck here, and it's just gonna be where I'm gonna be. This is where you'll find me, you know, somewhere between the black and white. That's where I'll be. I I was like, wow, that's for a deathcore song. That's pretty emotive, 
in a way that it's usually not when it's like, let's punch stuff. (laughs) (laughs) Were you going to say more about the lyrics, Starville? Oh, and that, and it kind of builds off of what uh, James was just saying. Cause I was curious if in, you know, any of these genres where you've got this growling screaming that it's, it's hard to hear what they're saying. If there's a level of fandom that's like, oh, and because of that, we need to go in. Because I'm a fan of this, I need to go learn the words. So I'm like in the club because if you just listen to it, you're not going to learn the words. You got to go deeper and actually learn the words that way so I can be at the show like screaming along the right words, like proving myself. Do you feel like there's that element in the genre at all or no? Yes, there is a subset of people that pride themselves on that and everything. I feel like an idiot when I go to these shows and try to sing along <laughs> because I I can't sound like this. Gr- growing up as a scene kid and playing in groups like, you know, screaming in some fashion is a requirement and I can do the the high falsetto screams. Like that's fine. I can I can hang out there all day, but when um, you know, they played to the Hellfire live and I was there with them, and they got the, the you know, the Azrael taking me beyond the veil. That's what it would have sounded like if I was trying to, the Azrael taking <laughs> me beyond the veil. Like, it doesn't work. Yeah, especially, like, being old at the show, you know, and being a good boy and wearing your earplugs. You really hear exactly <laughs> how your voice sounds when you're screaming, and you're like, oh, God, I, I do not want to do this in front of anyone. <laughs> No, that's a good question, Darvel. I know for sure, like, when I was in high school, listening to hardcore bands and metal bands, I did want to be sure that I knew those lyrics. So when the crowd starts rushing the stage at the singer to grab the mic, I might get a piece of it. Or when the singer at the really cool part points the mic at the crowd, I know exactly what to say. So I don't know if that's the case with this. I would that I could definitely see that making sense, especially because it is a younger crowd of people listening to this band. Like I think a lot of older people might find this band quite annoying, like older metalheads, older as in uh, over the age of 30. Um, (laughs) So I, I, I could definitely see like learning the lyrics as like a, a tribal kind of marker or like some sort of privileged currency but between your the 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 people along with that because it's also the uh the band logos and i know we had texted about this last year when uh james had sent out a poster of a show he was going to because and i I was wondering about that too i was like is is this part of it too it's like almost like a decoding like try to find the band name inside this logo but at the same time like inside of a fandom i feel like there is a if if there's an expectation that you as the, you know, listener or uh, consumer have to put an effort to figure this out, you're likely going to take more from it than other people that are just casually consuming their media and stuff. And so I was curious if that is like, Oh yeah, that's what this is all about. Or if it's like, Oh yeah, I guess that could happen. Yeah, I I think so. I actually read a book about this like in college because I did my senior thesis on extreme metal. Oh, and there's a really good book. I can't remember the title. Something about like the transgressive meaning of extreme metal. I don't know. 
basically like the author was talking about how all of this stuff you're mentioning, like disgusting sounding vocals, incomprehensible logos, you know, offensive lyrics, uh, whatever it is that like they're creating a very, very strong social capital in the group that uses that social capital. So like that stuff is not going to have any value or social capital in a group of like teenage girls who, you know, are listening to Billie Eilish, but it might have an immense amount of social capital among like teenage boys who are listening to this band nonstop all day long. And and so like, I, I think that's a big part of it where it's like, okay, we could make our logo easier to read. We can make these vocals a little less alienating and we could have a lot more casual fans or we can have fewer extremely devoted fans who have like completed, you know, answered our riddles three and have reached the, <laughs> the Holy grail of being a fan, you know, like they they've proven their worth. So I, I do think there is a little bit of that, like creating some intentional barriers to like feel that you are, Oh yeah, I, I'm cool enough that I know what that logo means or, or whatever. Cool. And I did, yeah, kind of a finishing thought with that too, because I was surprised or impressed that, again, I feel like I, <laughs> if I were to attempt to write a song that sounded like these songs, I wouldn't even bother writing lyrics because <laughs> this would just be lots of growling and noises and stuff. <laughs> and so I was impressed when reading through the lyrics of this album, especially this song, of how good they were when, uh, you know, you don't necessarily hear them all the time. I remember in uh, high school and I was listening to some band with, you know, screaming lyrics. And my dad asked like the typical dad, like, you don't even know what they're saying. What's the point? I was very proud of myself as a high schooler because I said, well, you like that Los Lonely Boy song and you don't speak Spanish, so you don't know what they're saying at the bridge either. <laughs> like, and I, I, he didn't really have a very good uh, answer for that. <laughs> but like, it, it is like a similar thing where it's like, well, this, this has meaning for someone. I like how Darvel said, like, I have nothing to say and then like brings up a couple of the smartest points on the podcast. Yeah, here we go. <laughs> but very much off specific topic of the album so meanwhile joey and i are just name dropping obscure european metal bands that nobody cares about <laughs> except for us um cool so the next song we have um is apotheosis right yes so yeah so this is the the glimpse of light um one thing i thought was interesting about this and, and again this is kind of getting getting your take on this joey i'd be really curious as a guitarist and music theory person they have these elements on the album where they're playing in a minor key in a very consonant way. Mm -hmm. So they have this like D minor lead sound where it, it's basically outlining a D minor chord, but ending on a G. Yeah. I, it's interesting. You mentioned that they, there's a few interesting things they do. So they, they sometimes, the, so outside of the ending of the song, which is a very like, you know, six, four, five, one type thing. Yeah. Sometimes they go from, yeah, it goes from like D minor to like G diminished, which is interesting. Yeah, it, it's a, a weird move because it's like D minor to G. Okay, that's that's fine. You know, we can that's a very familiar sound. But yeah, the G is like kind of loosely tonally defined, I think. Okay, that makes me feel better. That that was like the first time on the record where my ear was like 
that was not what I expected. Yeah. So one one thing. So it's a very black metal chord. It, it, I figured out what it is. It's going from D minor to G diminished. But what you hear, you hear the very strong, the, the D flat in the G diminished chord almost acts as a leading tone to the D minor. So you get this like oh. half step movement between the D and the C sharp going back and forth. Black metal does it a lot. Radiohead does that a lot too. Like moving, falling from one chord to a chord a half step below it is like a big radio head thing too. That's really cool. Hey Darvel, I just, I looked it up in my email just now. That book is called extreme metal music and culture on the edge. It's by Keith Han Harris. Awesome. Yeah. My only other real comment on this song is the, uh, I really like kind of uh tuplet punches in the orchestra before the 32nd mark where I, I literally didn't notice this for the first time today. There's this amazing scale run in the strings but it's it's so much of the production of the album is just so bombastic and loud and resonant the whole time, which I think is a cool effect. But these little details, I don't think a lot of people would pick up on unless you listen to it over and over and over again, and you're looking for those details. But today was the first day I heard it, and I was just like, oh my god, that's really cool sequencing. <laughs> I actually was curious the the a glimpse of light you know the kind of pretty anthem part towards the end like i actually charted it out like uh, not charted but like i was like what chords these are these are real chords this is a real chord progression that actually you could like and i did like you could literally get an acoustic guitar and like strum along with this you know campfire style and it, it is it's like a very normal it goes like d minor b flat d minor a minor which is kind of weird for d minor yeah, then D minor, B flat, F, C. Like, it's a very, like, normal tonal pop chord progression. I also wrote really great, disgusting vocals towards the end. <laughs> <laughs> Darvel, did you, what did you think at the part where it is, like, kind of, like, prettier anthem-type stuff towards the end? Um, I don't have any recollection of that. I'm curious to go back and listen for that. Um, yeah, I didn't know. I I will say with that, I did learn while listening to this album how much vocal melody means to me, <laughs> like how important that is for me. Because it was like probably about this point in the album when listening to it that I was like, what is missing here? And it mm -hmm. was like, oh, there's, I mean, you get the choir and stuff, but like with how he sings, like, you can't get the melody that I'm used to in there. And so it was interesting. I then started to listen to where they kind of make up for that melody and the instrumentation. Um, and there were a few cool parts. I should have written them down because I don't remember exactly in the album where they happen, where, you know, his singing with the guitar melody was kind of like creating that melody for this, for the uh, vocals. If they were like, how can we get Darvel to like this music? I would ask for, a, you know, some vocal melody in there what would be really cool bring in a really awesome woman singer to sing like really awesome vocals in the choruses like melodic pretty i think that'd be really cool with this band will and courtney laplant already have that like relationship a little bit right like oh really i didn't know that I, i've seen him perform i think you sent me the video oh yeah like where they spirit box yeah but like i mean like a powerhouse like within temptation like 
type belted out there singer. I think that'd be cool. I fall on the, I, I kind of want Darvel to listen to like symphonic metal now because I don't, I think once he hears what this music sounds like with a clean vocalist, he'll appreciate the gross vocalist more. <laughs> <laughs> and I, you're big into like Symphony X, right? Yeah, I love Symphony X. Yeah, I, I've tried. Oh, I love it. I I want like cheesy, like belted out there. Iron Maiden's fine. Like love Iron Maiden. I can I can do Sabaton. Oh, I don't like Sabaton very much. But like that level of cheese, mm-hmm. like I can deal with. But when I, I I think when it's like the earnestness of like a Broadway <laughs> musical. You're like with you're this like, like. You're like Seinfeld, where he's like, I can't watch a man sing. <laughs> <laughs> it it's what it feels like a little i don't i don't just the dichotomy of this kind of music with with someone being like operatic i don't know so this is this is a funny thing so trans-siberian orchestra everyone listens to them at christmas and something me and a high school friend started talking about and we still talk about this like people love that band they think it's very cool it is cool like orchestras electric guitars very heavily thematic stuff. Like it's very cool. That is an entire genre of music that people could listen to all year long and they don't, <laughs> they just listen to that band at Christmas time. And I always want to say like, well, why don't you listen to like Nightwish, or why don't you listen to, yeah, any number of symphonic like power metal bands that sound just like this band. You could even listen to Sabotage, which like the guitar players in this band, that's their band. I don't know. I think it's symphonic metal always. I think it's really cool. People all agree like this sounds cool. Again, though, the first time, no, the only time I've seen Trans-Siberian Orchestra, like they played all the Christmas hits and stuff. And the first time the ballad happened, I was like, oh, this is is uncomfortable. I don't like this. And that oh. was like the f- the first of six. I listened to Symphony X like all afternoon, like three days ago when I was cleaning the house. You're going to have to make me a mix or something. I don't, I don't know. I, <laughs> I, I've tried. And... No, I, I think Russell Allen is like one of the greatest vocalists of all time. Okay. Where do you fall in Dream Theater? See, I like Jordan Labrie a lot too. Okay. So we need, we need Darvel to be the tiebreaker on this. Yeah. He needs. <laughs> <laughs> Wrath. Again, I'm a poser, Joey. I don't know the genres as well as you. This, to me, seemed like the most metalcore song on the album. Is that a good... So, definitely some parts of it did. I thought a lot of it sounded like a monomarth. Like the mm-hmm. There's No Sin, that there's some part where it's like very 16th note. And I do think it's really cool when it switches to the triple feel, like kind of gallopy on the like again and again. There are this song and then the first part of pain remains are definitely the most metal core. Like we'll talk about it on the next track, but like the first pain remains has some parts that are like very kill switch, like the old kill switch engage. Um, but yeah, this, I think this song excluding the outro breakdown is like a more of a metal core song, like, like unearth or, or, you know, kind of the older metal core. I didn't write much about this song. Only thing is, Kind of with the uh, concept album, um, I mean, we already talked about how this is supposed to come before um, Apotheosis for the story. It is, I really like the concept. When you first mentioned it was a concept album, I was worried it was going to be some dumb, you know, typical, trying to be dark storyline, something. (laughs) 
and was like surprised like oh this is interesting and I mean even elements that like made me reflect on my life but at this point it did kind of feel like it's like wrath uh I'm angry I want to destroy everything apotheosis is like oh there's hope and then it ends up by the end like back to wrath like oh okay never mind just destroying everything again but uh maybe i was missing bigger things there it did kind of for the story though it did kind of fizzle out for me it's like oh we already did this before and now we're just doing it again after a little bit of hope the way that i took it again flipping this with apotheosis is like this is where he is before any like hope comes back into his life like he's ascended to godhood he's made this race of people he's now just consumed with depression from soulless existence you know and so this is where the anger is coming from you know he he's on the other side of that and then apotheosis he gets that little bit of hope when pain remains without getting too much into those tracks i took it to be at the end the the only way i'm getting out of this dream is if I destroy everything. So where this was much more of a, I'm angry at my situation. The other one is like almost like a righteous fire. Okay. That's how I took it, but that's me reading into it. You know, it isn't explicitly said. Yeah. No, I like that. I really liked the triplet section in here. It was punctuated by those long rests and then kicked back in. I thought, I thought that was a cool way of doing kind of a breakdown thing without it actually being a breakdown. And I would have loved more of that. Yeah. I wrote the outro breakdown part is bonkers. Like where like it totally <laughs> leaves like meter behind and we're doing what a breakdown does, which is like breaking up a song. I think the other parts do it maybe in a little more pleasant way. Yeah. And then the, the only other thing I had was the, the high to low voice in the chorus, man, just so it's such, he, he has like a pedal board of effects for his voice and he uses them so effectively it was like an octave shifter just boom yeah just yeah and that's i haven't said that specifically in this but even though i don't enjoy this type of music i can definitely appreciate the skill in from everyone like very very impressive stuff that they're doing now you said that and i kind of want i want to get joey's take on this as a bassist Possibly one of the easiest bass gigs you could ever have is playing bass in this band. Who knows? <laughs> There's no way to know. Like, okay. if, I don't think I say this in a neutral way. I don't think you need a bass in a band like this. Like if they're going to be adding sub kicks to everything and you're going to be using downtune guitars, you, I mean, you might not need a bass. Like and it also depends either. It could be the easiest job in the world or if they're like doubling a lot of this stuff, it could be the most difficult job. I, who knows? I'd, I actually, I kind of want to go watch some live videos and see like, what is the bass player doing in these songs? Cause you can't really hear. So in my mind, it reminded me of like when you're a kid and you have to play with your little brother and you leave like the second controller unplugged. <laughs> <laughs> That's <laughs> That's kind of what I felt like with the bass on this album. Like the guitarists are like, "Oh yeah, you're you're doing it, champ. You keep going." And then they're just like hammering away the the, the string, the shopping cart that has the car attached to it. (laughs) (laughs) I'm sure he's I'm sure he's a talented guy, you know. But like I like you said, I just I couldn't tell what he was doing. It is not 
it is not a distinct voice in the band, in, in the genre, really. The other thing is, most of the time in, in these kinds of bands, the bass and the guitar are playing the same, literally the same pitches, because like you can't go low enough to go an octave lower. Like you can't actually that like the notes don't make sounds that low, or if they do, you have to have like specialized equipment. In Mashuga, for example, basically the bass is just like a another guitar with a different EQ. Yeah, you know, a longer scale and everything. I feel better now. I felt very judgy when I was like writing that down <laughs> in my notes earlier, but I was like, I just I can't. Yeah, and I mean, like, so like, and Justice for All by Metallica, you hear like this needs a bass like they didn't do bass on this album you can't hear it that's not the case with these like once again no not detracting from the skill it must take like it's just not all that necessary of a component last last song slash songs this song is is really interesting to me in a lot of ways i'm gonna have to separate them into three because i have comments for each but the fact that they are a deathcore band playing essentially like a hard rock power ballad was really, really interesting. And this was the first song that not the first song soulless existence was, but this was like the song that like you really feel the emotional impact in a way that I'm not used to feeling with this genre. So I don't know if anyone else read this. I read an interview with the guitarist who writes all the music for this band about this song. That was pretty interesting. So first of all, they made a phrase, pain remains. They're like, that's a cool phrase. (laughs) And then, so they wrote a song. They're like, okay, this is going to be, this song is pain remains. That song is what is now pain remains too. They were in the studio and they were like, okay, we've got a big chunk of album. What do we want to do? And they're like, what if we did like an old school, epic three part, 15 minute long thing? And they're like, okay, well, let's start with this Paint Remains song and then we'll just add to it. And then someone was like, hey, what if instead of just like stretching this song, what if we added a song, basically added to the beginning of this song and added to the end of this song? And that's what led to Pain Remains 1 and Pain Remains 3, huh. which I thought was kind of clever. That makes a lot of sense structurally because 2 and 3 seem a lot more related than the the first part does. Yeah, as almost you can almost think of it as like a prequel. <laughs> Darvel as the as the person coming in from the outsider perspective, did you feel like this part of the album changed? Like this song specifically or the three? Either or. F- listening to it? No. It just all blended in with everything else. But I mean even just looking at the track list, it is an effective way to uh get my attention I tend to listen to the first few tracks of an album the most just because, you know, I'll start it and then have something else I have to do. But I did go back and listen to these three. These are probably played as much or more than the first three tracks Tracks just because it was like, oh, there's some kind of trilogy here. I want to better understand that. But again, my non-metal ears just listening, I could not separate this from the other songs. The The big distinguishing factor for part one for me is the chorus. The very first time everything cuts out, we have the dancing like flames flickering in the night, and then the chuck doo doo boom boom cha bomb, which is like yeah. a very, you know, like I said, power ballad, hard rock trope, and they do a pretty good job of keeping the deathcore kind of out of it, 
until they get back to the the post chorus and then the second time around they add those elements in when they play the chorus and it's faster and it's got that kind of double time thing and then they strip it back again into the power ballad mode um i thought was pretty interesting yeah he he uses a new voice on this song that we haven't heard before which is kind of the like raw hardcore vocal kind of like I, i mean about as close as he gets to singing if you could call it that on this song you hear it in that first and last chorus where it's much more of like, like I said earlier, kind of like uh, the Jesse era of kill switch or um, unearth straightforward, like hard rock metalcore singing, quote unquote. It's cool. And, and specifically that part there really good with the, the lyrics too. That was a pretty big emotional tug. The first time I heard it, the within the expanse, I finally see a world without you. Is it right for me? Or, uh, or is it meant for me? Sorry, mm-hmm. I'm looking at the lyrics now. Man, just it really tugged at the heartstrings in a way that I'm not used to, again, with these kind of albums. This is also where we get the really cool Greek word for, like, ghost or spirit, eidolon. E-I-D-O-L-O-N. I, oh. I was reading along with the lyrics, and I was like, ooh, that's a cool word. I'm going to look that one up. It's like a, a phantom. Yeah. I, so I wonder, Idola, the post-metal band, is that where they got that from? Probably. I've never heard of them. I have feelings. <laughs> They're interesting to me in the same way that Sleep Tokens is, is interesting to me. Where it's like, I feel like I should like this, but I can't because of this reason. Worth a listen, though. I'll put a track in the group text. Okay. Sorry. Other thoughts on part one? I mean, kind of bold starting out with just your very normal 6-4-1-5 chord progression at the beginning. It's like, you know, almost like praise and worship or something, you know? Which gets into the thing on part two that I, I want to talk about. So if we're good to just segue in there. Sure. Let's do it. We get the outline of the melody in part one on the piano. The ba-da-da-da, ba. On part two, when it gets to the, after all that I've done, after all my pain, towards the end, you have this ba-da-da-da-da, ba-da-da-da, ay-da-da. And the first time that happened, I was like, that note doesn't belong there. And so I went and got my guitar and started like, plucking it out and i was like okay this is a major scale Mm -hmm. but we're not playing in a major key yeah they do that on this album a few places and this is one this is something i've thought about a lot with extreme metal i often wonder how intentional something is there are ways to argue like oh yeah i'm I'm choosing a major notes because i want access to these sequences adam neely has a very good video where he's talking about the background vocals in uh Rolling in the Deep by Adele. There's like a weird thing where they sing major key notes instead of minor key notes. The more cynical part of me is like, oh, these people probably just can't keep their major and minor notes straight. Like, you know, like they use the wrong box on the guitar. I don't know if that's true. Maybe I'm really offending the guitarist right now, but I do also have to wonder that. So are they playing on eight strings? Do you know? I don't know. I don't think so. I'm looking it up right now because now I'm curious. Sorry, Darvel. I told you that this is... Oh, no. They're they're playing seven strings. <laughs> so they would have the low B on top, right? I bet they have a low A. Okay. I bet it goes A, E, A. That way they have a power chord on the bottom. The major scale's in B flat. Mm-hmm. But the chords underneath don't support the B flat mm-hmm. from what I hear. So my two theories on this are, one, it's... It's just polytonality. They're just keeping the, the minor scale that they're playing in, whether that's G or B minor or whatever, and the B flat scale's happening on top of it. 
two, and, and this is where how much credit do we give them? Are they possibly making a play for stratification where that low note is so far out of the tonal spectrum? Like it we... doesn't count? Yeah. Mm, I am more apt to maybe unfairly not give them credit <laughs> and think like they did some stuff and said, oh, that sounds cool. I don't know. I mean, like the thing with extreme metal, it's all about like, it's as much about sound as it is about music, you know, where it's like, this sounds a certain way, like the, you know, doing a, a squeal on the guitar. It doesn't matter what note the squeal is. It's a squeal. And I think you can extend that into the musical parts as well, where it's like, this sounds a certain way or going the other end of the spectrum of, Hey, what if I, this, this sequence of stuff I did with my fingers and the frets on the guitar, what if I moved it up to two frets? You know, like just like very kind of simplistic calculations is that's what I'm more apt to to think. That almost makes it more impressive to me yeah. that they hit they hit that sequence that way in a way that could be interpreted, you know, the other way. Because, man, it freaks me out. I was driving in my car the first time I heard that that scale played. And I was like, whoa. And I, I remember rewinding and listening to it again and then being like. I can't deal with this right now. <laughs> I, have to, I have to come back to this later. Put a pin in that. So I like this Pain Remains 2 a lot. I like that it is just this like complete constant like assault, like whirlwind, you know, almost like, like Behemoth or something where it's like, this is just like wall to wall blitz of, of a song. You know, I think that's really cool. The, the lyrics are about like fury and sadness and everything. And kind of like raging against this reality that he's in. And so I think having this just this like nonstop, like, you know, start to finish kind of fits that. I was just going to mention that I, again, really like the concept of the album. And then I found that they had music videos for the trilogy. And I was like, oh, sweet. And uh, I'm glad we're not doing a music video book club because... I did not like those music videos. They, uh, especially like with the couple that is kind of the storyline going. I was just kind of like, oh man, I was hoping it would be more about like the full concept with this, you know, dream world and that aspect of it. But when just tailored down to that, I was like, oh, okay. So, so kind of dovetailing what Joey said, the part where it's, it is a lot of rage, but I thought it was interesting how it was all introspective rage. And again, that's not something we hear a lot in this music. It's all about how I'm wronged by people. And, but this is all, after all that I've done, after all of my pain, after all I've become, will I disappear? Yeah, that's, that's the answer. This is the world that I've left, so I'll disappear. You know? and, and then he actually says, you know, the world disintegrates towards the end. Which, that kind of informed my interpretation of part three, I think. Yeah, and it's been interesting too, because I was... <laughs> I wanted to write a song that would sound like what I would think would be on this album and just play it for you guys. Cause again, like grumbling in the grocery store, like there's music in my head that's not attached to anything specifically. And I'm like, I could sit down and chart this out and put together a song with this. And I was like, I'm curious if I were to do that and then hand it to you guys, how much of it would be like, Oh, this is good. Or if it'd be like, Oh, this is 
so simple, so generic. Like there's nothing impressive here. Um, but listening to your comments and stuff, I'm guessing that's the route it would go. Because I was curious how much. I was curious how much like when you're listening to music, you're like, oh, that progression, or oh, that scale, or the use of this, which it sounds like is a lot. Because none of that ever comes into my mind. It's not until like I'm learning a song that I'm like, oh, it's interesting they did this here. Um, so it's cool hearing the things you guys are pulling out of it. For me, that's a product of how many layers are here. I'm not like that when I'm listening to, you know, like when we were doing the Mama album, I was not as intrigued by what was happening in, in the guitar melodies as much. It was just kind of like, oh, that's a cool riff or, you know, that kind of thing. Yeah. But but when they had the, like the octave fuzz, it was like, is that a guitar? I don't know. Like that to me was was more interesting. And so the more layered music gets, um, especially like when I'm listening to like some of the more recent hip hop stuff that I've been getting into, that is, I'm more predisposition to do that than I am listening to the pop or straight ahead punk or metal or whatever. Yeah. I just kind of let that wash over me a little bit more. Joey, you're, I think that you always are listening for those elements though. I don't, I don't know. I think I, I'm actually would say a similar thing where it's like, I think certain genres or even songs within genres like that is a value you know where i'm like oh that is a really clever chord progression or like oh my gosh that guitar lick is so difficult cool yeah i th i think it is one variable or like one vector of like coming at music because like the thing is is like i listen to a lot like even when i was in college like for music i listened to a lot of like trash music and i still listen to a lot of trash music like if there was one person in college who had the biggest chunk of the pie chart, it was probably Lady Gaga, honestly. Like, there's not much I'm learning in my music theory classes that is going to, like, get me into Lady Gaga. So it, it kind of, yeah, I think it depends on, like, what you're listening to and what, what road or, like, what path you're going to take into it. Because the thing is, how many people listening to Lorna Shore have much of a working knowledge of music theory. And yet there are probably people that like this album way more than I do. So they're obviously getting something else out of it, you know? Yeah. So last track on the album, Sea of Fire. This is where the dream world's got to go. Everything's going to burn up. I freaking love the phrase, I'll salt the earth in a crimson blaze. Very what cool. a cool line. Plus he does a cool, he has like these like layered vocals when he says that line that are, are very cool. It, it's like almost like a teeny tiny little vocal. It's almost like his own little choir at that part. Yeah. That, that whole chorus is very strong for me. And this is one of the ones where I, I knew the words to this before looking it up because I, I listened to it so many times and like just really latched onto that affectation. I meant to mention earlier, I think it's interesting that he does kind of like what we were talking about with Oliver tree, these, these affectations of his voice while screaming, yeah, <laughs> which I, I, I don't think I've ever heard before. Um, he did the, like on another track, it was swallow, but he goes, swallow, you know? <laughs> and it's like, Oh, you know, you know who does that, that I can think of the, uh, like the East coast, hardcore bands like Jim shorts, tough guy hardcore east coast stuff they do some of that where like you can hear how much from new jersey they are like even <laughs> while they're like screaming or whatever that's interesting i i'm not super into that stuff so i want to check out 
some of that. So I have a question about this song. The very, very beginning of this song, we hear something we haven't heard before, which is they use synth bass along with like the, the timpani and the strings that we've been hearing this whole time. I think it's a mistake because one, it's kind of weird to do it at the very last song. And I think it kind of gets in the way of like, we're doing orchestral extreme death metal here. That's what we've been doing this whole album. And then the very last song, it happens later in the song too. We have some new sounds that we haven't heard before. We have the synth bass at the beginning. We also have orchestral bells announcing the chorus towards the end. And then we have bell piano in the outro. It's very like anime sounding, like all these like very synthesizer sounds that we haven't really heard until this song, which I thought was an interesting choice. So I didn't notice the synth bass at all. Me neither. The bells I did, and I thought those were cool. The the like toy piano thing towards the end, I kind of took that as the, and again, reading into this, I don't know the actual context behind it, as like, that's the waking up. Yeah. And that's why that texture timbre change happened. Well, and the, the bells would fit that too, like church bells or alarm bells or whatever. That's actually way more clever. <laughs> <laughs> I will say when the big fallout happens, before the last statement. Yeah. And, and I know it's such a trope. And, and like, I knew it was coming. And you could even hear the breath before the impact happens. But like, man, I, I got like the goosebumps when it kicked it in my car. I was like, oh, that's a cool build. The the string sequencing is so good. And I think that those layers of like the chimes and everything really sell that last impact. Obviously, there are a lot of breakdowns on this album and a lot of them, you know, they're all the similar style where we have the lowest note on the guitar that's being doubled by the drums. There's like low guttural vocals. There's lots of sub kick stuff added into it, you know, sampled into it. Something that's different in the breakdown on this song is there's a lot of what I would imagine is intentional clipping in the drums and the low end. All the other breakdowns in the other songs are very tight. Not like Meshuggah tight, but like the low end and the headroom. It's like very punchy, tight, low end. This one, it starts to fuzz out. Like you can hear clipping on the kick hits. You can hear clip. The, the low end goes from being kind of a tight, punchy low end to like a rumbly, distorted low end. And I wonder what that means. That's a cool detail I did not pick up on. The other thing, maybe I just didn't notice that the other breakdowns were clipping too. Like, I think <laughs> that's part of the sound of the genre a little bit mm -hmm. to have like, oh, my speakers are exploding, like that kind of sound. It's, <laughs> it's like how all movies now have lens flare in it, you know, like even when it doesn't really make sense. Man, it could be, though, it, it could fit in. It could be the, you know, everything's falling apart, you know, those kind of like, they were like, what could we do to make this sound worse? Yeah. Definitely. Darvel, you said this kind of ran together, but you did come back to these tracks. Did this have any emotional impact for you at all? Or were you just like, oh, thank God it's over? <laughs> Again, I think um, the things I did take away were as I read about the story and looking at the lyrics. Um, and again, like there were things that looking at my life or, you know, dreams I have, visions, like there are things that I'm like, how, oh, what? What is the point that I was able to pull a lot from? Coming back to these three songs, I don't think I found what I was looking for, but I think that was, if you gave me a month 
well, let's say three months to listen to this album only, I think I could get to that point. But I think just being new to this, all of these genres combined here, it just was so hard to separate the things for me to have something that was really like, oh man, this song, this part. Um, I think that's a fair thing to say. I mean, this isn't like we pushed you into the deep end of the pool with this record. This is like we went to like a raging torrent in the ocean and dropped you from a helicopter. (laughs) (laughs) We're like, make it back to shore. Have fun with it. Like, (laughs) make it back to Lorna shore. (laughs) Yeah, a lot of the music I listen to, like Julie doesn't like. She likes some of it. There's a lot of music she listens to that I don't like. She hates this. Like she is, does not like this. Whenever, when, when James and I went to see this band and I was like, this is who we're going to see. She was like concerned, like, <laughs> like what, <laughs> like not like concerned for me, but like, what does it mean that this music exists? Like, <laughs> like this is bad. <laughs> Just the, the question of like existential <laughs> issues exist in the world that made this happen (laughs) is just fantastic yeah i've i've put it on a few times mostly to get a reaction from the family and Brittany, this morning i put it on again and i i started it with all the instrumentation and everything um and so she was like oh i don't know what he's listening to but then when it switches into it she just her word was worthless that's she was like that's that's the only word i have for this is worthless so and then uh, the kids too. It's been fun. Uh, they actually, uh, the movie Sing Two has like an old lady character that, when she's driving somewhere, is listening to Chop Suey by System of a Down. <laughs> and uh, in the mornings, when the kids won't get up for school, I'll put on loud, heavy music and shake their bed and stuff. And so I put that song on, not realizing it was in the movie, and they were like this is in the movie. And they have been obsessed with that song. Like they'll ask, like <laughs> and, uh, we, we have fun singing that with them. Um, but I've been putting on other stuff. So I started putting on Lorna short when they don't wake up in the morning and they, they've had fun screaming with it. And then David today, <laughs> I was listening to it and he was like, it kind of scares me. Like, can you not listen to it? <laughs> but yeah, it's a, uh, it's interesting. I did I did put an effort to try to see if it's a taste I could acquire, which I think it still could be, but uh I don't think I'm going to expose myself to it enough to acquire it unless you guys force me to and just <laughs> devote the rest of this podcast to death metal. <laughs> These vocals are way more interesting and dynamic than the vast majority of death metal vocals. The normal vocals for death metal are just the constant cookie monster vocals. Hmm. Cannibal Corpse wrote that book and that's what you do. So like this album is crazy with the vocals compared to that. There's so many different styles and and maybe not even styles, but just like tones represented. Well, and Joey, that that goes back to the point that I was going to say. I, you know, I, I made mention on Instagram and also talking with my family, I was like, this band's meteoric rise has been so fascinating to me because like we saw them in a venue that held 300 people later in that tour, they played the house of blues. They went from the house of blues to playing Lollapalooza. 
and now they're opening for Gojira and Macedon, two of the biggest names in modern yeah, metal. At, at the largest, <laughs> except for the arena, the largest venue in Oklahoma City. Right. And I, I was talking to my brother about it, and I was like, I, I don't get, like, they're not playing accessible music. They're still playing Deathcore. Why are they having this moment? And he said that he saw a lot of parallels between Will Ramos and Eddie Van Halen. That's a good, that's a really good analogy. Where he was like, you know, there were a lot of people that didn't listen to, to metal in the 80s who heard Eddie Van Halen play and were just like, what is this? How is he making these sounds? And, and that got a lot of people just to listen to that band. Even if they didn't listen to any other metal, they would probably have a couple Van Halen records because Eddie was a virtuoso. And I really think, like I said earlier, I think Will Ramos is a generational talent. Yeah, that that's a really a really good and I think accurate analogy. Like people recognize like this is something different. I wonder what it is. And again, I do think there is like an appeal to it where I mean other niche hobbies that I'm in or communities and stuff. I mean having something that you know if you were to just go put it on for your average person, they're not going to get it that there is that appeal to like I'm going to go figure this out so I can enjoy it and belong to this group that you know people that just bump into it aren't gonna get and i like that yeah talking about the like meteoric rise so i I wrote probably my favorite extreme metal album ever is the album the satanist by behemoth i think it is like a perfect album with like incredibly like moving parts it's just perfect there are points on this album that are as good as that album. Wow. I think, I think what's interesting though, behemoth has made like 10 albums. I think all of them have at least a couple really cool, awesome songs. I don't think any of them are nearly as good as the Satanist. Like NPR was talking about the Satanist and how good it is. And they have so many albums and are like, considered one of the most important extreme metal bands of all time. And I think the fact that this album is as top to bottom good as it is and has some moments that are, I really do think are as good as some of the best extreme metal I've ever heard, I think is really impressive. Like, especially considering, like you're saying, this band was nobody nine months ago. Right. And, and, even weirder, it's not like, oh, this band didn't exist and then they just came out the gate swinging. It's like, no, this band was a mediocre band a year ago. Like they existed, they had three albums under their belt, no one cared about. I think that's really interesting because most of the time you don't really see that. You see bands that like come out with one awesome album and then kind of trail off, or maybe they continue to come out with awesome albums. You don't see a lot of bands come out with like a few ho-hum albums and then like an incredible album i think that's really interesting yeah no 100 percent. and the the ep that preceded this was also very good and obviously is a large credit to their fan base because of the tiktok sensation that was to the hellfire which i think was the worst track on that ep but i do <laughs> think all those tracks were very samey mm-hmm. and I was not expecting this album to be good. When I heard Sun Eater and it sounded like the EP, I was like, well, it's going to be more of the same. Then the art came out and I was like, ugh. Like, yeah. we've got plain font with guy with knife to his throat. I'm like, this is <laughs> not going to be great. I was shocked. 
in terms of runtime, I can't think of a record since probably my undergrad days that I've listened to as much as this album. <laughs> this album has made me want to listen to more metal again. Cause like I listened to a ton of metal, like all through high school, college after that. And these days I don't listen to much metal. I don't listen to much music in general these days, but I don't listen to a lot of metal and like listening to this album a few times has made me like, Hey, metal's cool. <laughs> like I like metal. I forgot. <laughs> Next week, Joey, what are we listening to? So I would like to, this is an EP. I don't know if that counts for our uh, purposes. It's only, Ooh. I think five tracks long. It is by the artist Yeba who is an R&B singer from, I believe, Memphis, but could be Arkansas outside of Memphis. I don't remember. The EP is called Live at Electric Lady. It's at Electric Lady Studios in New York. It's a very stripped down. It is a live recording. It's not multi-tracked. She's just playing with Questlove on drums, Pino Palladino on bass, Charlie Myers on keys, I believe. And it's just like these like four people just cooking and if you haven't heard Yebba before, her voice is astoundingly good. I mean, just like a perfect instrument. And then, uh, you know, obviously anything with Pino and Questlove is going to be a treat. So, yeah, I think it's really good. Um, remember when James was pitching this podcast idea and was like, 30-minute episodes? Do we want to each do one album? So three albums in a 30-minute episode? <laughs> and here we are doing two plus hours on one album. <laughs>